You are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community, about the truth about migraine diets. Welcome, Mary. How are you? Oh, good. I'm actually just sitting here in the group right now, kind of like scanning through a little bit of conversation about migraine diets that was posted a couple days ago. So it is a hot topic for sure. (laughs) It is. Well, I think it is one of the most discussed topics and definitely with my clients, one of their top concerns that they have to eat a certain way because they are prone to migraines. Right. And, you know, we're always kind of blaming the food many times. You know, that's one of the common things that people attribute their migraines to is what they've eaten. And it's interesting because when we are in pain, the mind is always going to jump into action and try to figure out why we are in pain so that we can avoid that in the future. And so I wanted to talk also today about why the mind sort of goes to the food, why it is that that very frequently our mind will sort of put the blame for the migraine on the food that we eat. So I think this will be an interesting topic. I agree. Yep. So first of all, let's talk about where the mind goes when we're in pain, huh? All right. Yep. So, you know, we are wired to figure out why we are in pain, whether that's physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. We are wired to figure out why we are in pain so that we can avoid the painful situation. So our body is going to do whatever it can do to get us out of pain. And so, like, for example, if we put our hand on a hot stove, our reflexes kick in and our reflexes will immediately remove our hand from that hot stove. And that is a protective mechanism. If we didn't have those reflexes, if we couldn't feel the pain that the hot stove was generating and we just kept our hand on the hot stove, well, then our hand could be severely injured. We could get serious infection, die from that infection, right? So when we have pain, that is a signal that the body really takes very seriously. And if reflexes can take care of the problem, our reflexes will kick in. If we don't have a reflex that's going to solve the problem, then our mind is going to go into action and it's going to start to sort of hunt down what could be causing this pain that I'm in. I'm going to start looking for answers. It's really interesting because like in our culture right now, it's there's like this movement of be positive, think happy thoughts, right? But like genetically, biologically, our brain is actually wired to look for negative so that we can, like you said, you know, hone in on what is the problem so we can fix it. It's a protective mechanism, right? Absolutely, right? I mean, if we did not have these reflexes to remove our hand from the hot stove and we put our hand on a hot stove and we were in pain and we just said to ourselves, oh, I'm just going to think happy thoughts. (laughs) This pain in my hand, I have it on a hot stove. That would not be effective at all because Our hand is being damaged. You know, we need our hand to survive. If we have severe burn, we can have an infection that can lead to sepsis. I mean, we've got a whole host of problems that's going to come down the line. If we sit here and go, I'm going to, you know, think happy thoughts. (laughs) Exactly. So we don't need to be hard on our little brains that we're 
you know, focusing on the negative it is something we are supposed to be doing in order to survive. Exactly. We are wired this way. We are designed to do this. It is a protective mechanism. The problem comes in and, you know, many times we can easily identify the pain. So I was out in the garden over the weekend and I was cutting, you know, doing some cutting of the hedges and so on. And as I was picking up the little hedge branches, little clippings, I got two little Uh, splinters, one in my index finger, and then one on the side of my thumb as I was kind of picking those up. So I felt that pain. Right. Ouch. (laughs) And so then what did my mind do? Oh, I'm in pain. Why am I in pain? All right. So I started looking at the painful spots and then I saw, oh yeah, I got a little splinter in there. And then I was able to remove the splinters and then the pain went away. So if I didn't have my mind jumping into action, Oh, well, I just have pain in my finger. Oh, I have pain in my thumb. Okay, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to just think happy thoughts. No, my mind moved me into action so that I was able to notice that I have these two splinters. And then I was, okay, let me take the splinters out. Okay, now my hand, you know, my finger doesn't hurt anymore. So in many situations, when we are in pain, it's very obvious what the cause is. And we can take clear steps to fix the problem and make the pain go away. Unfortunately, migraines are not that simple. Migraines are a very complex phenomenon, a very complex cascade of symptoms that affects multiple organ systems. For most people, a migraine is not just head pain. There are other systems. There are other symptoms involved. People can be nauseous. They can feel dizzy. They could have tingling. They can have mood changes, right? There's a whole host of other symptoms. It's a very complex phenomenon. Also, when the, I like to think of migraines sort of like a tsunami hitting the shore. So I believe that, you know, if if we get a migraine at 2 p.m., that's when we become aware of the migraine symptoms. But the migraine very likely started prior to 2 p.m. So it's sort of like, you know, when an earthquake happens in Japan, right, that earthquake generates that underwater tsunami. And that wave is rolling along the ocean floor. And, you know, boats at the surface, they have no idea there's a there's a wave, you know, going along the bottom of the ocean until that wave hits the West Coast. Then the waves come crashing on the shore and we and then we notice, wait a minute here, there's something going on. There's a phenomenon happening here. Which explains why so many people have that, uh uh-oh, something's coming feeling without anything really there. It's like a a phantom symptom. I don't know what is that called. Uh Uh-oh moment, right? Uh Uh-oh moment, yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know if there's a medical term for it, but uh uh-oh moment seems to... Describe it well. <laughs> uh-huh. That's <laughs> that's what I used to say to myself. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh someone's coming and you Uh-oh. don't feel like, like there's not necessarily even a, a vision disturbance. That's usually when I first notice is when it's like, uh-oh, my vision looks weird. I don't know. Is this a migraine coming on? But is there even sometimes for people who like don't even have a vision, but they just feel the uh-oh, you know? Yeah, exactly. I've had auras and 
for sure, like when I think of the auras that I've had, even before I can see the first distortion in my vision, I still feel like there's something wrong here. What is this? Is Are my glasses smudged? There's something there. Even if there's really not something there. Exactly. I can totally relate to that. Some people, before they get a migraine, they actually have an improved mood. You know, they f- actually feel really great, right? So yeah, a lot of times people don't even recognize like the first waves that are hitting the shore. Because even when that tsunami hits the West Coast, the first waves are not that characteristic. It's It has to build up before those big waves start coming in, right? So sometimes it can be even very difficult to determine when the tsunami is hitting the shore exactly. When did it actually start? You know, it it makes sense that migraine sufferers are kind of always on like hyper alert. Like when is it coming? Exactly. Yeah. Is that an uh oh moment or is it not an uh oh moment? <laughs> exactly. So you can imagine, right? So, you know, now we have, you know, worldwide earthquake monitoring and we have you know, worldwide weather projections and, you know, sea level projections, right? We have this amazing infrastructure, right? So, you know, we're not caught off guard on the West Coast anymore. If a earthquake happens in Japan, you know, nobody on the U.S. West Coast is caught off guard. They issue tsunami alerts ahead of time now. Right. But you can imagine a few hundred years ago, earthquake happens in Japan. You know, you take the indigenous people that were living on the Pacific Coast here. They wouldn't have even known there is Japan. Right. If earthquake happens, they don't even know that that exists, right? That where that earthquake happened, they were not even aware of that part of the world, right? All they were aware of are, wait a minute, these waves keep coming in. Whoa, wait a minute here. We've got a whole situation here. There's a big problem coming. <laughs> exactly. What you know? And so the people at that time, what would they have done? They would have spent a tremendous amount of time figuring out what caused these waves to crash upon our shore here because we've got a, you know, disaster here and we want to prevent that, right? And so humans, since the dawn of time, when a disaster happens, they try to figure out why Right. And over the course of human history, we humans have blamed things like tsunamis on displeasing the gods. Right. Wide variety of things. It's only now that that we know why that tsunami is coming up on the Pacific coast. But you can imagine, you know, since the dawn of time, how much speculation and incorrect conclusions we humans came to as to why a disaster struck. So when we experience that migraine, it's a disaster, right? It's no fun. And so our mind is going to do what all human minds have done since the dawn of time. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? And so the mind will go into gear. And unfortunately, our mind is not able to access this complex system that we are, right? I mean, we don't have, we cannot bring to consciousness the function of every cell in our body. And so the mind is setting out on a task that it's pretty much going to fail at when it comes to migraines. It can figure out, oh, my finger hurts because of a splinter. But for our mind to figure out why we have a migraine coming on shore, it's not going to be able to do it. It's a very complex phenomenon. And that migraine, that migraine might have kicked off two days. Just like that tsunami takes a couple days to reach the coast, it can take a couple days between the quote unquote triggering event and when we actually experience the symptoms. And so how are we going to figure that out with our mind? Right. But boy, do we try. 
Right. And we like need to just remind people that like it may not be the fluorescent lights in your office that kicked it off, but it's kind of like that's the last straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. So it might have been something two days ago that started it, but it took a while before the the straw hit the camel's back and then it broke. For sure. And when it comes to our mind trying to figure out what caused this, our mind is going to review the day. Okay, well, this started at 2 p.m. What did I do right before that? What did I do an hour before that? What did I do two hours before that, right? It's, it's going to kind of start to review the day, review the timeline. So what do we do all day long? We eat. We have at least three meals a day. Of course, yep. Then we have snacks. So when our mind is reviewing the day, it's not going to take very long before it comes to meal time. You pick a time during the day and, you know, you're going to be within a few hours of a meal or something that you've eaten. So it becomes a very likely candidate for the mind to fixate on. What did I eat? What, you know, oh, migraine at 2 p.m. What did I have at lunch? So this is what our mind is going to do. But then we get poor advice on top of this. So our doctors tell us, well, you have migraines. I want you to keep a detailed food log. I want you to write down everything you eat. And then let's see if we can notice any patterns. So this is professional advice that is kind of getting overlaid on top of what our mind is already going to do. It's going to even reinforce for the mind to suspect that it's something that we've eaten. Right. Or the typical stop eating everything diet. And what is it called? Like they gradually add everything back in one at a time. Yeah. Like an elimination diet. Exactly. Like it goes to pretty extreme lengths to figure out what the culprit is. Exactly. So people, you know, already the mind is going to start to suspect that it's something we ate because that is going to be in near proximity to the onset of the symptoms that we are aware of. Then our doctor tells us to start to log all of our food. Now we're going to try to figure out a pattern here. Well, to do that, now I've got to become a little bit obsessive. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right? I've really got to put my mind on this now. So again, this is like, I want you to go back to, you know, a little human settlement a thousand years ago on a coastline. And I want you to think of that tsunami hitting the shore. And I want you to think of that little community of humans banding together and saying, all right, we got to figure out where these waves are coming from and why they're here. I want everyone to look at their food. What did everybody eat today? Right. Obviously wouldn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) Well, you know, it seems obvious to us now because we know (laughs) this is from an earthquake, right? You You know, this is from an underwater earthquake. But, you know, I mean, it's reasonable as anything else. True. So then you have that, let's say that little human community start to obsess around what people are eating, you know, look for connections. Well, the last time we had these waves, you know, we had a community corn dinner. Oh, no, nobody can eat corn anymore. I mean, the human mind could definitely go down this route. So what we experience as we're doing this, right, we're doing the food log and then we start to look for patterns. Okay, well, you know, I had strawberries two days ago and I, you know, now I got a migraine. Let me look for the last time I had strawberries, right? Maybe it's the strawberries. Maybe I won't eat strawberries. So then we won't eat strawberries for six months. And then June comes around when all the berries are in season and the strawberries look so delicious. And so then we have a have some strawberries. Oh, I didn't get a migraine. Okay, great. I guess I can eat strawberries. 
No. So then right, we keep eating strawberries and then a month goes by, we have strawberries. Two hours later, we get a mic. <laughs> oh no, maybe I shouldn't eat strawberries, but I ate them before. I ate them for a whole month and nothing. But six months ago, I ate strawberries and got a migraine, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I can't eat, right? See how confusing this is for the mind. That literally could drive you crazy. Exactly. Talk about anxiety provoking. Yes. Right? Can I eat the strawberry? Can I not eat strawberries? And so people start eliminating food on suspicion. Well, I mean, sometimes I eat strawberries and I'm fine. Other times I don't eat strawberries and I get a migraine two hours later. So you know what? I just, I'm not going to chance it. Right? Just abundance of caution. I'm going to avoid strawberries. Well, and I know we've talked about in other episodes, like when we talked about digestion and stuff, it's like you've said before, they people start taking one thing away and another thing away. And pretty soon their list gets shorter and shorter of what they can eat. Exactly. We have a great podcast on food triggers. I direct everybody to that podcast. It kind of takes this conversation to a little bit deeper level. You're absolutely right. When we are reacting to foods, it has more to do with our digestive function than the food itself. And so if that, if you say, wait a minute, you got to be kidding me, check out the Food Triggers podcast. So people will, you know, they're doing these diet diaries, they start to eliminate some foods out of an abundance of caution. And this, like you say, gets obsessive, gets very anxiety provoking. Well, what if this has strawberries in it? Now, when we go in a restaurant, we can't just order off the menu. We've got to have a five minute conversation with the waiter. Does this have any, you know, is there any strawberry sauce? Do you have, you know, like, please, no strawberries. And then everybody else at the table is like, ay, ay, ay. So it becomes extremely anxiety provoking. And then it doesn't stop with the strawberries because the migraines keep coming. Well, geez, okay, I haven't had strawberries in six months. I still have migraines. What else could there be a connection to? Well, nobody, you know, everybody tells me gluten is bad for you. So maybe I'll stop eating gluten. So now this is where, as you mentioned, we start to go down the road of some of these dietary fads. Well, everybody knows you can't eat wheat. Everybody knows you can't eat eggs. Everybody knows you can't eat pork. Everybody knows, right? It's like everybody knows suddenly this food is poisonous, bad for you. What about the whole anti-inflammatory? Because like, that's a hot button word that people talk about a lot. But when I look at food, I'm like, is this strawberry anti-inflammatory? Or does it cause inflammation? Or like, it's not like everything comes with the label saying whether or not it's going to cause inflammation. Yeah, so (laughs) this is going to be... All right, I'll stand down. You go ahead. (laughs) So yeah, we I do have a podcast on this anti-inflammatory diet issue. Okay, so again, I would direct people to that one, and I think we need to do probably a part two on that because it is a very very misunderstood concept. So so people start eliminating some of these foods. You know these quote unquote, offender foods. And so then they start going down that road. Then you can get into some of the elimination diets, some of the extremely restrictive diets. Probably one of the most uh, restrictive would be something like autoimmune paleo. Okay, so the paleo diet, this is the conception that we humans can't tolerate, you know, we haven't evolved enough to tolerate the diet that's been in place for roughly 10,000 years 
we have to go and eat what humans ate in the Paleolithic age before we started cultivating grains and and so on. So this is the belief that we should be eating the diet that humans ate when they were less than five feet tall. (laughs) So nuts and protein, like Mm -hmm. yeah, like animal foods, right? Because that would be like hunted game. And then things that could be foraged in the environment, right? So nuts, seeds, honey, fruits, you know, berries, vegetables, things like that, right? But it would be avoiding the things that we humans have learned to cultivate since the Paleolithic age. So again, in the modern age with, you know, with the environment that we are in now, we should be eating the way that people ate when they didn't have any of those things in their environment. Does that make sense? You can see where I'm going. With this. I'm like, I don't even know where to hunt tacos, you know? <laughs> where do those even live? <laughs> right? Yeah. What's the natural habitat for tacos, right? And then to add uh, even more pain to this diet, they call it the autoimmune protocol. So with autoimmune diets, they're eliminating some of these so-called inflammatory foods such as eggs, wheat, you know, that would already be eliminated. But basically, you know, you're eliminating eggs from that, dairy products, etc., because these are supposedly inflammatory foods. Right. I've heard sugar is inflammatory. I'm choosing to ignore that, but... You're ignoring (laughs) that one? Yeah. (laughs) It's not, I'm not going to, not going to listen to that. So that is probably one of, one of the most restrictive diets. Another very restrictive diet would be a vegan diet, only eating plants. Okay. So that's extremely restrictive. There is no naturally occurring vegan diet anywhere on earth, just FYI. And there are some naturally occurring vegetarian diets, but vegetarian diets do incorporate animal foods. Vegan diet would not. Um, So that would be an extremely restrictive diet. That's a kind of one of the more recent fads. Okay. So people will try sort of all of these general fad diets that are supposedly health promoting, paleo, keto, intermittent fasting, vegan diets, all of these things are kind of prominent right now in the hopes, right, that they're going to eliminate the food that's causing the problem. Isn't there like a whole entire book about like literally called the migraine diet? There's several books that say that if you are prone to migraines, you have to eat in a particular way. And this is sort of like the last stop on this train, right? Because people will start to eliminate foods here or there. Then they eliminate some of the things that they're told over and over again, you shouldn't eat like weed or eggs or something. They might go into sort of like a diet that anybody with any health condition could follow like keto or autoimmune paleo. But then the ultimate is no, you need to eat a particular way because you have migraines. And that's where we get into the migraine diets. I'm just like, like, I just took two seconds and Googled migraine diet book. And I'm like, holy cow, there are so many different books. And I don't know, to me, it goes back to the whole spaghetti on the wall theory. Like, which of these books, like, you just guess which one you think might work and go for it. I mean, I don't know, it just feels like a whole shot in the dark. And like so many other methods that we've talked about, it's a money-making thing for people, which is really sad. You know, you don't sell any books by saying, this is how how you should eat to support your health, and it's going to apply to everybody in your family. (laughs) 
That doesn't have much of a ring to it from a marketing perspective. (laughs) Yeah, right? It doesn't have the ring. Exactly. But so we have to go back to the cultural biases that we have, sort of the mindset that we are all steeped in. So when we have a chronic health condition, like chronic migraines, we have been told that we have a chronic health condition. It can never be turned around. You have to manage it, right? When we have a chronic health concern, we have to manage that. And that we are sort of broken, defective, you know, just bad luck. These chronic migraines just fell out of the sky and landed on your back. And now this is the cross you have to bear. This is your life. Well, and something, like you've always said, and something has to come from outside of you to fix it. Exactly. And so wouldn't it make sense if that's what you've been told all your life, wouldn't it make sense that you have to eat differently than everybody else? That would be a logical conclusion. Well, if I've got this, you know, migraine monster on my back that I have to bear and manage for the rest of my life, I bet you I can't eat like everybody else. And so that, you know, when you write a book that says this is how you need to eat if you have this health condition, that makes sense to people and people buy that book. Unfortunately, it's not true. And I can tell you it's not true through my own personal experience. So sort of, I would call it almost a hobby for, you know, nearly 25 years now, I have tried every diet out there. So even before I became a naturopathic doctor, I became really interested in all of these different dietary schemes so to speak. So once I restored my health, when I was in my mid mid 20s, I knew that my calling was to become a naturopathic doctor. I was frankly terrified to do that. And so I did not do that right away. It took me many years to get up the courage to do it. But in the meantime, I would read every book about these diets, you know, so I have done every diet, I'm always on the lookout for new diets, fads and stuff like that. And I will test it out on myself. So I have experienced, you know, firsthand the pros and the cons of all of these different dietary fads that have come through. And they, when I eat, according to the program, it has, it may have, I may feel an effect on my health, positive or negative, but it does not have an impact on my migraines. Because if I notice that a particular diet is degrading my health, I will stop it before I go into my migraine zone because I don't want to get migraines. <laughs> right. Makes sense. And what kind of hints does your body give you that it's downgrading your health? Well, so within the three principles, okay, so if you've been following the podcast, I talk about these three principles that are required to restore and maintain our health. And if we have blockers or missing pieces, if we start to get sort of deficient, if you will, within those three areas, there are symptoms that the body generates. I go through those symptoms in my free training called the five steps to healing migraines naturally. I go through what some of those typical symptoms are when we start to develop deficiencies within those three principles. So you can imagine that I'm on the lookout for those things and I reverse course if they start to come up. 
slam on the brakes. <laughs> now, a few years ago, I was experimenting with doing some sort of typical things that people will do with their eating habits to try to kick myself into a migraine, sort of like real obvious non-health supporting eating habits. A few years <laughs> ago, I, I went through a little phase where I was trying to kick myself into a migraine just so I could test a, that is sadistic. And also that <laughs> it's like, what did you eat? Cheetos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Like, <laughs> I really don't want to know. <laughs> exactly, right. But I didn't enjoy that too much. And so I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> But however, last year, end of last year, I did try one of the latest dietary fads for two months. I gave that a go. So that is something that I'm always, I just always have a lot of fun with and enjoy doing. <laughs> so, right. So I'm somebody like every woman listening to the podcast. If I am not in a state of health, I'm going to get migraines. Okay. So how can I eat all of these different ways. I can do keto. I can do intermittent fasting. I have done traditional vegan. I have done vegan keto. I have done the audio, autoimmune diets. I've done paleo diets. How can I do all of these different dietary fads and not get migraines? Because it's not the dietary scheme that keeps us out of migraine zone. I have, I probably don't have every migraine diet book, but I, I have most of them. I have either tried those or read them to understand why people are, you know, why the author is recommending them. Now, you have to understand what most people do is they tell other people to do what makes them feel good. That's why everyone's like, oh, I swear by this, that, and the other diet. I swear exactly. by that. So what I have noticed, looking through these migraine diet books, okay, they're written by people right? They're written by people who are prone to migraines. That's why they're passionate about it. But what I see in the recommendations is that what worked for them, this is now what they are recommending. And I don't do that with my clients. I have done all these different diets and I have, you know, experienced, okay, how do I feel on this one? Well, I, you know, I feel better on some than I do others. Okay. When I did traditional vegan, that was real tough for me. When I did vegan keto, oh, that was a breeze for me. For other people, they can do a traditional vegan diet and not have, you know, they can feel great. For me, yeah. eh, I don't, I don't feel at my best. How long do you usually give a diet just when you're testing it? Like, do you recognize something within a few days or do you give it a few weeks or? Oh yeah. So I will give it several months. Oh, gotcha. Okay. For sure, because I want to experience like what are the long term changes that I know. Well, I don't know about most people. <laughs> Maybe this is just me. But when you start like a new eating habit, it usually lasts two or three weeks. And then you're like, well, that's not working. So there's a pretty good chance that people are, I mean, maybe it is just me, but like not even reaching the point where they can have a true measurement of how it makes them feel anyways. Well, and I'm not doing it to feel better. I'm doing it to test the diet. Right, exactly. So I'm motivated to do it for as long as I feel I need to do it to kind of get the data that I'm looking for. Getting a good test on myself and kind of understanding, okay, what does this diet do? So my motivation is totally different when I right. do this. A general person who's just trying to figure out their migraines may or may not even be doing it long enough to help them or hurt them. So they I may not be an actual 
yeah, like measurement of how it's helping, I guess. Or they may be eating in a way that was really great for the author and not at all compatible for them. I mean, these migraine diets, there's one in particular that is a level of insanity that involves. So there's one popular migraine diet that obviously works for the author, but it's so, I don't want to mention it by name, but it is unbelievably difficult to implement. It requires at-home blood sugar measurements, something like a diabetic would have to do, uh, which is quite, you know, diabetics don't like measuring their blood sugar because it is painful and it is so involved. I mean, if, if you don't have diabetes, you're going to be very unwilling to do that. And then requires monitoring things like barometric pressure changes and monitoring all these things in the environment, the menstrual cycle, and then adjusting nutrient ratios and adjusting things to account for all of these things in the environment. It is, when I look at this, I mean, this would be like a full-time job. For real. So rather than the migraines consuming your life, the method of eating consumes your life. Correct. Exactly. And the author, you know, clearly this worked for her, but the insurmountable odds that anybody else is going to be able to implement what she recommends. I mean, to become that obsessive over things requires a particular type of personality. And <laughs> if you don't have it, you're not going to be able to do it. I know I don't. Right. I don't have the kind of patience that sounds like that requires. No, I mean, I'm not going to be monitoring the barometric pressure changes and then adjusting you know, if I had, you know, adjusting things based on barometric pressure changes, that is, I don't, I don't have the personality for that. So, but like this begs the repeating of, I think one of the first comments I saw you make in the group when I first started working for you was that you said, if your body is in a state of health, you should be able to go out to a restaurant and eat a plate of chips and salsa or whatever it is without it causing you migraines. So, you know, it's same thing with all of the forms of diets. If your body is in that state of health, it shouldn't matter if you're eating paleo or keto or Cheetos, <laughs> you know, like to some extent, right? Like, right. I mean, you know, everybody knows Cheetos is not a health food, right? <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Yeah. You know, we should be able to eat Cheetos occasionally, right? If we're eating Cheetos every day, obviously, right? This is not health supporting food ever. This is not a big bombshell for people. But last weekend, we went over to my folks' house. My mom is a fantastic baker and she made a chiffon cake for dessert. I thoroughly enjoyed that piece of cake. And so again, if I'm eating chiffon cake every day, eventually that's going to cause some problems. But can I go over to my folks' house and enjoy with my family a wonderful dessert? Absolutely, I can do that. So it's, again, like I keep saying, it's really not the food. Everybody knows that we have to have health-supporting eating habits. And when I work with my clients, if they need to make some changes in that area, we make some changes in that area, okay? But there is not a particular way that we need to eat because we are prone to migraines. Everybody needs to eat in a way that supports their health. This is universal. 
But when people write a book, they are writing down what worked for them, what they enjoy eating, what kind of hassle they don't mind doing. That's what they write down in the book. And some of the better diets incorporate general health supporting eating habits. So if, I mean, if you're in a healthy state of your of body, you should be able to just pick up a generalist book of how to eat to be healthy and be okay. Well, unfortunately, you're not going to find that book. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just saying like, in general, you should be able to, I'm going to eat protein, vegetables, fruits, like the stuff that we all learned in elementary school should be good enough to sustain health. And well, you- unfortunately, so now you're going to get me on my soapbox. Oh, no. <laughs> What we are taught in elementary school is influenced by the food lobby. And so the food lobby may or may not have our health in mind. And so unfortunately, what I have found in my work is that people have not been taught, you know, how to eat to support their health. This is a real problem. And I've been ridiculously confused over the years with all of this. Well, you know, I can't eat grains. I can't. Now I can't eat beans. I can't eat eggs. You know, like the foods have been scapegoated. The foods have been made into the villain. True. That's so true. I still to this day, like I think there's my like I love my mom dearly. But to this day, she's like low fat to like to her deathbed, like, <laughs> because the 90s were everything had to be low fat, right? And now it's almost the opposite of like, well, if you're eating healthy, you need healthy fats in your diet. But it, it makes it really difficult to know what actually is healthy for your body when it just depends on which decade you live in, you Well, again, so you and I are around the same age. We were alive in the late 80s when this low, low fat stuff kicked off. Remember the snack wells, cookies and all this other kind of stuff, right? We love chemical laden, fake sugar and low fatness like that. That was the the hip thing back in the day. (laughs) So let's kind of dissect that a little bit. So you had this thing take off, right? There was a, a study that was done, a faulty study that has since been debunked, right? That we humans shouldn't eat a lot of fat. Now, we know a tremendous amount about human physiology and human biochemistry, even in the 80s. Believe it or not. <laughs> Believe it or not, right? Now, even in the 80s, they knew that every cell in the body requires fatty acids and cholesterol to function properly. But you can take a faulty study, and then what happened was the food industry had an opportunity. If you make cookies at home, you're going to put fat in the cookies. The cookie recipe, the homemade cookie recipe has fat in it. You are not going to be able to make at home a cookie that you're going to want to eat that doesn't have fat in it. It's not going to taste very good if you just remove the fat from the cookie recipe. Snackwell's Cookie Company, they were able to come up with a recipe, as you say, with it, you know, the, the thing that they substituted, uh, they added all this sugar into those fat-free foods, if you remember. Because when you take the fat out of stuff, it tastes like cardboard. So now we got to add sugar to it so that anybody would want to eat it. So then the, you got to make that in a factory because you can't make that kind of stuff at home. It's not going to taste good. But if you have it in a factory and you have all these additives and 
stuff like that. Now you can make a cookie that doesn't have fat in it. So now instead of making our cookies at home with fat in them, now we're dependent on the food industry to make a quote unquote healthy cookie for us. <laughs> right. That costs, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't cost very much to make cookies from scratch. You know, a pack of snack wall, snack wells, cookies, right? Or, I don't know, 10 times, 20 times the cost to make it at home. I don't know. Right. But obviously it's a uh, multiple times more expensive to buy Snackwell's cookies than to make them at home. And then again, this captures everybody, right? Because, you know, we're never talking about maintaining our health or anything like that. You know, it's always like we've got to do something real super special. We've got to manage symptoms, right? It's like we just can't, you know, there's <laughs> nothing about living a health supporting life, but we got to eat in a special way. That captures people because of the culture that we're in. So you have to appreciate all of these fads. I mean, look at keto. Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> so keto is basically Atkins diet. Dr. Atkins wrote the book in the 80s. Well, nobody wanted to hear Atkins anymore because it was kind of passe. So now it's called keto. So now when I go in, so 10 minutes from a Whole Foods, I actually went there this morning. You can't walk into a Whole Foods without all of these products for keto. Isn't it interesting? Here we have diet that requires me to purchase products that are made in a factory. Interesting. So what is really going on here? We have a false understanding of disease. Disease comes around when we are not in a state of health and we can restore our health. So we have a false conception around what disease is. We have a belief that we need something external to us to feel good or feel better. And then we have food industry, we have a natural supplement industry, and then we have a book industry that all work together. And the medical industry. So again, I will reiterate, you do not need to eat in a special way if you are prone to migraines. You need to eat in a health-supporting fashion. Everybody in your family needs to eat in a health-supporting fashion. This is not news. <laughs> Everybody knows this. You may be struggling to do that. And if you are, I'm here to help you with that. But when we are told that we need to eat a particular way because we have migraines, well, now I'm making two meals, one for me, one for the family. I don't know about you. It's enough to make one meal for the family. Amen. It's hard enough to decide one meal. Like, what are we having for dinner is, <laughs> it's like a question people pose before you hand over nuclear war codes. Like, <laughs> it's like the worst part of the day, you know? Again, if we have to eat a certain way, well, here's my food. I'm the one with migraines. I have to eat this way. How come I can't eat like everybody else? It reinforces this thing that we are defective, broken. That's not the case. We're just not in a state of health, and this is how our body shows it. Number two, what do we women do? We always take care of everybody else before ourselves. And so if I have to eat a special migraine diet and the rest of the family wants to have a normal dinner, what are most women going to do? They're going to get that dinner on the table for their family, and then they're going to go, well, for me, I'll just, I'll just have a little something. Exactly. And so then what we are, already, sorry, oh, I just was going to say, just especially if you're already feeling depleted, like the odds of you cooking the second meal are slim. It's right. It's not going to happen. We're going to shortchange ourselves. So what we want to move towards is eating in a way that's health supporting. Again, if people need help with that, I help them with that. But that is something that everyone in the family can get the benefit out of. 
So very good. What do you think, Mary? Do you think we covered it? I do. I'm sure that there is probably another two, three hours of conversation we could have around it because it is such a huge topic. And I just think that there's so many misconceptions. Like I'm still sitting back here going, seriously, did kindergarten lie to me about what was healthy? (laughs) It's a lot to digest and no pun intended there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, the food industry, the book industry, and the supplement industry, they don't make money when we go to the grocery store and buy food and take it home and cook it. And, you know, again, I I find it fascinating that, you know, even with the keto diet. So again, I have eaten the keto diet many times in my life, giving it a, giving it a whirl. I do not recommend the keto diet to my clients because there are some real health deteriorating effects of the keto diet. But it's so interesting to me, you know, you can easily do the keto diet without any supplements, factory made food products, et cetera, et cetera. And yet when I go into Whole Foods, here's the keto products. So again, health supporting does not require a whole bunch of other stuff on the side. If it did, we humans would never have gotten here. That's a good point. That's a good point. I wonder when, I guess, the the real industry really came about. Like, <laughs> people ate just fine without any books or people telling them what they needed to eat for hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, in modern age, we need a guide. Well, the supplement industry started... I can't give you an exact date, but there was no supplement industry before the 1980s. And so within the 1980s, that's where you see the rise of the supplement industry. And interestingly enough, I mean, I have some diet books. I think I I have some from the 70s. This is actually an interesting question here that we stumbled upon. When did all these fad diets start? (laughs) Like how far back? Can we go? I can think of some going back to the 70s. Let me, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole a little bit. Now you got a little, pro- <laughs> I've got a project. Maybe next time we can update everybody. Yeah, later. exactly. But yeah, the supplement industry. So, you know, my, I have some mentors, some naturopathic physician mentors that they themselves are in their 70s now and they started practicing in the 1970s. And at that time, there were no supplement companies. Anything that they recommended, they would have to make themselves. They would be actually making the herbal medicines and things like that. There was no, you know, supplement industry at that time. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. Do we really see the rise of these condition-based diets? You know, the Hashimoto's diet, the migraine diet, the rheumatoid arthritis diet, you know, the Crohn's disease diet. Do we see those come out after the supplement industry was born? That's an interesting question. I'm going to look into that a little bit. When I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so is this a chicken or an egg situation where now you have all of those, the, the diets that have arisen, but you also have such a like intense increase of certain ailments, for lack of a better word, like so much more autism, so much more gluten intolerance, lactose intolerance, like just, and I don't know enough to speak about all of those things like professionally, but I find it interesting that when I was growing up, you didn't hear about gluten intolerance. Like, what is that? And now it's 
everywhere. Interesting to think about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Right. So, you know, the health of the country is getting worse over time and particularly in our lifetime. The health of the U.S. population has declined tremendously over the past 50 years. Not not that you're 50, Mary, but (laughs) I'll never tell. (laughs) But it's a great, great point. Okay, so now we have all these health condition specific diets and people have never been sicker. Right. Well, we don't even want to start on obesity. Like I've struggled with my weight my entire adult life. And looking back, I'm like, well, yeah, I have done keto and I have done snack wells and all of the things out there that people have said will help have gradually made it harder and worse. And so it, it's just an interesting thing to like, is there an anthropology subset for health and wellness? <laughs> like, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, that could be a, a, a whole other podcast for several days, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway. Well, very good. Well, thanks again, Mary. Yeah. Appreciate you. In deep thought, Leslie. <laughs> thanks for having me again. Absolutely. We will talk soon. And thank you for listening. Before you go, be sure to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and other popular podcast platforms. Do you have someone in your life who would benefit from what we talked about today? Please share it with them. Share on your social media. Share within other migraine Facebook groups that you are in. We really want to get the word out that you can recover your health and stop getting chronic migraines. And if you want to stay connected, join my free migraine Facebook group with over 11,000 women who are rediscovering a migraine-free life. Go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND, on Facebook or to HealingMigrainesNaturally.com and we'll redirect you to the Facebook group. 